Welcome to State House Soundbites, WITF's Pennsylvania Politics Podcast. I'm Katie Meyer, State Capitol Bureau Chief for WITF. You can hear my reports on public radio stations across the state. With me today are uh, a big crew of people. We've got Brad Bumstead of the Caucus and Paula Knudsen of the Caucus and John Mysick of Penn Live. Thanks for coming, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So we have a couple of things to discuss, but first on the agenda, we've seen some really nasty campaign ads this week, um, specifically between Scott Wagner and Paul Mango. Um, John, you've written about this a little bit, I think get a column about it. What uh, what was your takeaway from just this last, I, I guess it was two weeks really that they started airing all these. Oh Lord, where to begin? Um, so yeah, for a bit of context, um, Scott Wagner and Paul Mango, the two sort of putative frontrunners for the GOP Gov nomination, have been fighting it out on the statewide airwaves for the last two and a half, three weeks, um, alternately trying to depict each other as the more liberal on a host of issues, including you know, sort of abortion and some other stuff. Uh, Mango went hard negative, nuclear, with an ad uh, that went up a week ago this Friday, in fact, um, hitting Wagner for being a polluter, for being a, for being a, a, a bail bondsman who bonded out a child predator, for being a slumlord who for being this guy who'd sued his own customers at Penn Waste and most controversial as a deadbeat dad who tried to avoid child support payments. Uh, the Widener campaign came back swinging. It is, I, I think Paula and Brad will agree, is probably one of the nastiest ads I've seen um, in one of these races in years and years. Yeah, I mean, Brad, did you have a, a takeaway on what was happening? I, I've never seen a rougher ad uh, than, than Mango's. I mean, Widener's hit hard on some of this stuff, but if you look at the Mango ad, it's a it, it, it puts Wagner in as a cartoon character to do all these various steps. And then next comes the violent Wagner, right. they promise you. And then yeah. that's about his previous PFA and apparently at one point uh, having an altercation of some sort with his daughter. Um, and the tracker, I think. The, 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 the they show a little preview of the tracker. Well, yeah, but it was really about the tracker is what, what I gathered one, one part of this. The daughter says that... that um, they, they've resolved all of this, that he's a great father, everything's fine, and, um, you know, it's, it's just to even get into that material, much less the way they presented it, is something that you just don't see that often, and even in rough-and-tumble Pennsylvania politics. <laughs> well, right, it seemed very, very personal, which, I, I mean, as nasty as the ads had been up to that point, I think they had been different. They hadn't really they, been... They'd sort of been specifically policy and issue-related, rather than this kind of hard personal stuff that, that we're seeing now. Yeah. yeah. They, I mean, the ads, for instance, uh, Sam Janish, our reporter, wrote about it in this week's caucus. There were ads called Tough, um, put out by the Wagner campaign, using words like conservative, reformer, and tough, in big, bold type. Um, so those are ones that clearly, you know, are trying to pitch a candidate as, you know, having these traits. But the, the one with the cartoon character definitely took a, a turn. Right. Yeah. I mean, even some of the harder hitting Wagner ads, which is, you know, pegging Mango with uh, Obamacare, that he had supported Obamacare. Well, as a consultant, he apparently did write some papers in favor of Obamacare, which doesn't make you a real advocate of Obamacare, but it was, there was a, some kernel of truth to it. Sure. Um, you know, and those are, that's sort of within the realm of fair game as opposed to uh, your daughter bringing her into it. and. and and apparently the daughter, was, Wagner had explained at one time when she was a teenager, had been doing a lot of drinking, and he went to try to straighten her out, and she sounds really thankful for it today, so who knows. But yeah, I, 
Sorry. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, the, the, actually, the Catherine Wagner, the senator's eldest daughter, is in a spot that went up this week. Um, it's very stark, black and white, her speaking directly into the camera, um, defending her father against these accusations from the Mango campaign. Um, yeah. uh, on Tuesday of this week, in fact, Wagner, uh, his running mate Jeff Bardos, uh, the state Republican chairman, Valda Giorgio, and some county folks were at state committee he uh, headquarters here in Harrisburg. Um, where they held a press conference calling for party unity. They called on Mango to take down the ads. His campaign has resolutely refused, in fact, even doubled down on its buy. Uh, what's particularly pernicious, though, I think about this, is this matter of the of the past PFA with Catherine Wagner, the daughter. Yeah. Um, it was the subject of reporting in both of the York newspapers in 2013 at the time. But, you know, I was contacted by the by the Mango campaign, who in effect said to me, well, we would never run the matter of Catherine Wagner and the PFA in the in the ad. We would never, ever talk about Catherine Wagner and the and the PFA she sought against her father. We would never be so low as to bring that. It, it, it's kind of like reverse backdoor. Right. We're not going to talk about it, but we're talking about it. And it's, <laughs> it's I, that, that was that was bothersome. Well, and so now I do want to talk really quickly about uh, Catherine Wagner doing this ad sort of to rebut the claims against her dad, essentially. Um, I mean, politically, I thought that was an interesting move because that, you know, keeps it in the news, essentially. I mean, do you think this is something that Wagner needed to rebut? Probably. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't, you, you can't leave something out there and not address it in state politics or it becomes like a fact. Yeah. That, that you were abusive or something. And, you know, yeah, he needed to do it. However, here's what happens. Look, you know, Wagner's had a decent lead in almost every poll that's been done. Mango comes in second. He's got to try to make some headway. So he's going with negative ads to try to increase Wagner's negatives. But by doing so, he can increase his own. And it's, it's just a question of how much his own neg negatives will increase versus how much he can you know, drag Wagner down. But some would argue that, look, negative ads are effective and he really doesn't have any choice. I'm not sure I ascribe to that and certainly uh, 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 Ms. Ellsworth would not. That she's yeah, I'm saying. sort of wondering how much of an opening this creates for Laura Ellsworth, who's mm -hmm. running at sort of 9 or 10% in most polls. She's been yeah. content to hang back, not engaged in this kind of mudslinging. Uh, Sherwood Nopped for Penn Live this week appeared in some other news outlets, you know, decrying the sullying of the campaign, saying that Matt Wagner and Mango were engaged in a race to the bottom. Um, she has tried to take sort of the intellectual and political high road in this race. Um, she has no money, so it's, it is what she can. It is what she can do. Yeah. But um, you know, there there are Republicans now who may be giving Laura Ellsworth a second look, given sort of the tone and tenor of the race between the two putative frontrunners. When she appeared at the press club luncheon here in Harrisburg recently, she talked about this, and yeah. she said. Voters don't want 30-second attack ads that they're bombarded with at home um, where politicians are talking about each other. And she said they're tired of it, they're sick of it, um, that's why you haven't seen me doing it because I don't believe in it. Then she told people that she doesn't think, um, she told the audience she doesn't think people are attending to the ads right now and she plans to release her own ads when the time is right. Interesting. Right. And well, I, th I think it's plausible that she will have some money to do that. I mean. She's a partner in the, the, one of the largest, if not the largest, law firm in the world. And, and I, I understand she has an extensive network of people. So she may have enough money to be on TV the final two or three weeks, which is when people are paying attention. Now, you know, does this really you know, help Laura Ellsworth win the race? Who knows? But it may create a little bit of an opening that if she can go through it with some TV, 
maybe she has a shot. Interesting. Uh, do you think this, I mean, we kind of said this, but do you think it actually does boost Laura Ellsworth if she stays out of this while these other two guys kind of tear at each other for the next couple months? Well, she has no real choice right now. Well, sure. But... Right, but it, I think it, it, it has the potential to help her, is what I'm saying. Yeah. But it's not a guarantee. All right. Um, any final thoughts on the, the uh, just great ads we've been seeing? I, I'm, I'm, I am sort of alternately looking forward and dreading uh, Scott Wagner. The Scott Wagner is violent ad. Um, uh, that looks like it could just set a new low, honestly. Yeah, has that one not it has, it hasn't hit yet. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. Um, all right. So I also wanted to talk about... Um, but there's been a lot of reporting in Pennsylvania in the last couple months, really, about sexual assault and harassment, um, especially in the legislature. As we know, most, the most recent case of that was Representative Nick Micarelli, who now um, has been a fellow representative. Tara Twohill has taken a restraining order out against him. Um, and, you know, he's been had his security clearances changed. A whole host of things have happened. Um, the caucus has done a lot of reporting on that, along with the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, so in the wake of that, there have been a lot of pushes, and there have been for the past several months, so not just you know in response to this one incident. But I think this incident was maybe a sea change for Republicans, especially because it was in the House Republican caucus entirely. So we saw a big group of Republicans come together this week and sort of advocate for uh, a new approach maybe to sexual harassment in general and in the legislature. And they uh, advocated some action, but of a different sort maybe than what the Democrats have been asking for and some other Republicans have been asking for in you know the lead up to this. So um, what exactly Brad uh, happened this week? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's good that they're on board and that they're calling attention to it. But if you really drill down on what it was they were saying there, and I wasn't there, but I just read the releases carefully about mm. it. They're talking about a task force. Yeah. And they're talking about a study to determine how much, how many cases there have been throughout. And, you know, that, that's, that's great, but some would say you need to do something right away. Uh, the governor has, Governor Tom Wolf has proposed uh, a series of measures, one of which would, would um, eliminate the uh, uh, secret settlements that occur, you know, the non-disclosure. And several Democratic members have done the same. Now, maybe that'll eventually be part of the Republican plan. Maybe they'll, they'll all come together and sing kumbaya. But right now, they, they don't seem to be exactly on the same page, except that they want to do something about it. Yeah, and one of the things I do want to note, one of the things that they were saying that they wanted to do was fully understand what they right. have in place right now, um, which apparently they don't understand or didn't understand before. Um, and, you know, t to that point, all four caucuses in Pennsylvania, in, in the Capitol, um, so the House Republicans, Senate Republicans, uh, House and Senate, Democrats, they all have different methods and rules for dealing with sexual harassment, and so does the administration and state agencies at large. So, I mean, it's fair to say these are confusing policies. Well, well you know, we've been reporting on this since last year, and right. one of the things we were trying to understand is where do people in the building, the Capitol building, go if they need help? And we ended up running a, a kind of breakout box with... Yeah maybe up to 10 different phone numbers. If you're in the Democratic Senate caucus, do this. If it's an emergency, call this number. If you know, And there was actually a different number to call if you were a core employee. We didn't even know what that was. So I mean, there's, there's all these different phone numbers and some of the advocates who had come in from a nonprofit in California were talking about their in development of an app um, and they went up to PCCD and, and talked to the folks up there at the, the crime and 
crime, whatever it's called. Crime, crime, crime and I always forget that one. Too yeah. many acronyms. <laughs> anyway, about how could the state implement an right. app where people could easily report and say, this happened, you know, I need help. Um, so that idea is definitely floating around out there, but there's the distinction in some of the legislation between fixing sexual harassment and sexual assault at the Capitol for people who work within the building and then those who are out in other employment situations right. throughout the state. And so they wanted, they had a task force on just general sexual harassment across the state and then also in the Capitol. So, I mean, I, I guess, so the point I think that could be made there is like this stuff is not... No, it's not like nobody knows what the rules are. People, there's been a lot of reporting on it in the last well, several months. I think we've all done stories about what the rules are. And let's not forget, there's an entire state agency dedicated to employment discrimination, right. the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. Um, and we haven't we haven't heard a lot out of the PHRC about this issue, you know, especially in terms of statistics. Do they have statistics about the rates of sexual harassment, assault? I mean. Um, you know, there is information out there, so yeah. to the extent that this uh, proposal would collect information, we would assume that there, there's information for them to draw upon. Yeah. Uh, so, in state government, uh, whenever there's a large issue, um, I think it's fair to say that lawmakers love making task forces and commissions, and they do that for everything. Yeah, it's, it's really, in, in one way, it's, it's, it's infinitely easy to sort of roll your eyes when you hear sure. about the formation of another legislative task force, or we're going to do a study. I mean, there are whole bookshelves that are being propped up with studies that have been conducted in, in this building, but I, I, think, I think Paul and Brad are getting to, to a key issue here, is, is trying to untangle the bureaucracy about yeah. who people in need need to go to about who they need to call when there's there's an issue is, is a very genuine and pressing thing so that's one of the reasons I think I'm sort of sort of restraining my involuntary eye roll when I hear about the formation of another task force this is such a such a huge and important and critical issue that it needs to be untangled it needs to be made as simple as possible for person from for a person to go from point A to point B when they need to seek assistance in cases of harassment or assault or workplace discrimination or whatever. And we've talked to a number of staffers and people who are involved in different things here at the Capitol have said, I didn't come forward for a number of reasons. I was scared, I was worried about my job, and some of them, they didn't know where to go. Right. They literally didn't know what process they should use. Yeah, there's not like a human resources department necessarily. And part of this has to do with the territorial aspects of the House and the Senate and the courts and the executive branch that they protect their own turf. For instance, the, the House has its own security force. The Senate has its own security force. Yet there's a Capitol Police force and there are state troopers in the Capitol who guard the governor. Go figure. I mean, you, you know, you would think that one police force could take care of all of this, but no, you know, certain chambers don't want Capitol Police from the executive branch coming into their offices to check on things, you know? Right. So that complicates it, you know, in terms of having one place to report. But you should be able to do that. There should be one number that you call, and that's it. Yeah. 911 on the street and a different number in the building if you have to. Um, to the point of the efficacy of, uh, you know, task forces and commissions and things like that, um, one of the things that a lot of these guys were noting when they came out and they were, you know, promoting this new Republican task force, and I, I think it'll be more bipartisan in the future maybe, but um, 
they were saying in the wake of the Jerry Sandusky allegations and subsequent trial, there was a task force on child sex abuse, and there were lots of new regulations that were born of that. That's true. That's and true. it ended up being effective. I think it, I mean, I don't think anybody would argue it didn't make a difference. No, that's true. And, and But I think the, the enormity of that and the national publicity of that oh, yeah. uh, provided no other alternative, whether they did it through a task force or they did it through committees, you know, clearly something had to be done, and it was. Now, you could argue that it's just as severe now in its own way, and it probably is, but Sandusky was was just a focus of national, turn on a network, and it was, it was on and the air. You know, what's interesting is there was a lot of media scrutiny on the topic of um, pornography being exchanged among state employees during the time of Porngate. Yeah. And obviously that didn't spur anyone forward into examining whether or not sexual harassment uh, was an issue within the state workforce. So certainly there have been times where it might have been ripe to examine this and the task force wasn't convened. Um, but but apparently now it's to the point where it's, well, it's hitting them where they live, isn't it? I mean, we have member, there are members in both caucuses and, and people throughout government who've been who've been directly impacted by this. Republicans can't not act because otherwise it looks like they're looking to cover one of their own. And and the Democrats on that side in January, Representative uh, Leanne Kruger Branicky introduced a bill. Um, that's pending in labor and industry. Yeah. And that committee's announced that it will hold a hearing on April 24th on all these issues to try to figure out which way to go. But her bill does have uh, bipartisan support. It's called the Me Too PA State House Act. And, and there are Republicans on that bill, including Representative Tara Tuhill. Yeah. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens on April 24th, what direction the committee decides to take or if they table it or call for more hearings. Yeah. Up until now, there has been this sort of like weird partisanship that's kind of framed this issue. Um, you saw a lot of Democrats, uh, when Leanne Kruger-Branicki and other people were releasing these bills in the press conferences, they were doing it was mostly Democrats. There was some annoyance, I think, among Republicans that they like weren't invited or something. Um, and now you see a lot of Republicans doing their own thing. So, I mean, do you think, it sounds like you don't think it's going to stay this partisan? I, I certainly hope not. I mean, Pennsylvania, though, is one of the, the most highly partisan yeah. sta uh, state legislatures in the nation. Um, so there's the potential for that. The Republicans have their own thing. The Democrats have their own. Everybody wants credit. You know, it's about winning the chamber next time around and, and, and all that. But I think, you know, there's some prospect here for them coming together. Just the fact that you have Republican sponsors on that Me Too bill suggests that maybe they can come to an agreement. Yeah. All right. Well, there was one more thing. And if you guys aren't uh, willing to talk about this, we can just edit this part out. But I wanted to bring up um, yesterday, Wolf had a, uh, a press conference on justice reinvestment, um, just about reforming how we you know, think about justice. This is something that's been going on for a long time. Um, and it, I think one notable speaker was Stuart Greenleaf, who's a uh, long, long time senator who's retiring at the end of this year. He was once kind of a very tough on crime guy, but has changed his mind essentially and is now very open to like reforming bail, reforming, you know, post prison, like uh, anti recidivism efforts, that sort of thing. So I wanted to get a sense. I mean, there's lots of bills. Wolf's initiative had like eight separate measures on it in various phases of completion. What are the odds that this stuff is going to get through the legislature? I don't see the Republican-controlled legislature taking on the agenda of uh, the Philadelphia District Attorney, Mr. Krasner. I mean, I just don't see it. It's, it's, you know, they may not be as pro-law and order as they were in the 90s and yeah. all that, but I also believe while they might have 
take some approach like Greenleaf is talking about in certain areas, but by and large, they're not going to buy into that yet. It's sort of like the gun issue. It's just now, it takes even they make. One difference, I agree with Brad there, but it's that clean slate legislation. Yes. Yeah. So that passed this week, 188 to 2, I think. Yeah. Um, right. Very right. little that disagreement. The mm-hmm. yeah. Right. And um, in the Senate, I mean, Scott Wagner, who I think would n- always tout himself as a law and order guy, is supporting the clean slate legislation. He's yeah. been right. in front of that for a while. Yeah. Right. I think we're, we're, we're at a point now where there's been a sea change in the way policymakers of both parties think about this. You see guys like Wagner getting on board with clean slate. You see Republicans getting behind issues like ban the box, where yeah. you don't where recent you know where released inmates don't have to check that they've been convicted right. of something. Because it, because it's a recognition that this gets away of if, if we're serious about rehabilitation and reintegrating prisoners into society once they're once they're released, that there have to be public policy solutions that allow them to do that. Otherwise we're just continuing this pipeline of them coming out and going back in again. A guy like John Wetzel, the correction secretary, has been very forward thinking about this. And I will say this, the intellectual vacuum that's going to be left in the Senate when Greenleaf retires is really quite vast. You know, I've been watching him for almost 20 years, and he has been gone on that continuum from being kind of a law and order guy to somebody who's been very forward. Kind of. He, he was never really Very hard, hard though, but, but very forward thinking on a lot of issues. And it, you know, whoever, whatever Republican succeeds him on that committee, you could probably see a, a pronounced change in, in tone in, and philosophy in the way those issues get handled and the way they get attacked. So it's really worth watching that part of the Next Senate. session is going to be fascinating it because is. Greenleaf, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, goes. Yep. And on the House side, Marsico, yep. the chair of the Judiciary Committee, is gone. Two of the so key appointments, yeah. They really do have a say in directing you know, what is going to come oh, up in front of that body and move out of committee. And so, I think for yeah. law and order stuff, I mean, Greenleaf being the chair of that committee, especially as now that he's made this a cause of his, I mean, that's an enormous, you know, I guess, boon to people who want to get that stuff through that committee. There's so many committees where... But he's where, leaving, so... Well, exactly. It yeah, has yeah. been an enormous boon. Right, and I guess what I was trying to say initially is I think there is some change, and, and you're going to see it on certain issues yes. and certain areas, but by and large, I don't see the Republican Party of Pennsylvania, you know, not being a, a law and order, you know... For instance, the Megan's Law issue, when we interviewed Senator Greenleaf, he talked about how he initiated that bill years ago, and now he's come to a point where he thinks there are some people who are being swept into Megan's Law who shouldn't be. There was a a court decision that, that kicked some people off the Megan's Law registry, and the House acted very quickly to introduce legislation as a fix to that yeah. case law to get people back on the registry. It would have kicked off some 10,000-ish people. Right. Um, and so that's an issue where I think the Republicans continue to be very strong, despite kind of outliers, I'm doing air quotes here, like Greenleaf, who's kind of changed his tune a bit on that. So yeah, and You used to see Republicans from, who, who were opposed to reenfranchising inmates once they came out. And there was, you know, there was a change in attitude on that, too. So there, I mean, it's it's slow and it's incremental. I can't again. I think Brad's right. Honestly, you're not going to see them racing to adopt radical reform. If it comes, it's going to come at the edges. But yeah. the interesting thing is, you know, at the national level, the Koch brothers have really pumped a lot of money into criminal justice reform, and yeah. it's a place where right. the right and the left come together. But here in Pennsylvania, outside of the clean slate, where else will we see? that happened. Well, and I think Stuart Greenleaf, when he was speaking yesterday, did bring this up. He was saying that uh, there was a one point, a lot of the conservative think tanks in Washington, D.C. came together and kind of drafted letters to to Pennsylvania lawmakers saying 
these are priorities that you should take up. And it wasn't very well received, I don't think. But um, one of the other things I do want to note, just because I think it's a significant issue, is indigent defense in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. very, very little funding for defense. We're one of the worst states in the country. I, 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 That's where one of the we, big We don't fund indigent defense from at the all. State level at, all. at the state level no. at all, no. We don't. And it's all at the county, county level. Yep, exactly There's right. been litigation over the years um, at that county level challenging that because really what it ends up being is such deficient representation. And Senator Greenleaf talked with us about that in our interview with him. Um, and it's been an issue he's been tracking. And in fact, Secretary Wetzel also talked about it with us in an interview we had with him. And they said, you know, this really is a detriment to the Commonwealth because we have people who should have adequate counsel and they don't. So you have, you know, a Republican and and the secretary for several different governors both saying we've got to do something, but the political wherewithal to figure out where that money comes from is hard. It's hard. And it's also, I mean, in Pennsylvania too, I think a character is characteristic of the Commonwealth is there's, you know, a lot of variation among counties about how the prison system works, the jail system at least. I mean, even like with bail, they're trying to do like bail reform to make sure that like there's not these like wide discrepancies between how various counties handle bail. And I mean, in some places people can sit in jail for a long time. Pre-trial detention for a long time because they can't bail out. And so I think it's, it's all sort of these like large issues wrapped up in this one larger issue of how do you standardize the system? Do people want to change it? Uh, I mean, I think Pennsylvania, I think it is fair to say Pennsylvania has lagged sort of the national conversation on justice reform. And conversely, though, you see like guys like Mike Fulmer, a very conservative Republican, sure. who's been out in front on civil asset forfeiture, which is this amazingly regressive and repressive measure where they seize your property, you can't ever get it back, where the cost is so so dramatic that it's disproportionate to the worth of whatever it is you're trying to get back. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's cracked down on that. So, I mean, I mean that's again, more of a libertarian. It is a libertarian thing. Yeah. True. But I mean, it's a, it's, that is at least an encouraging sign when you see right. somebody like that who recognizes the need. And a lot of progressives also yes. are very anti-civil asset. So, and the, and the thing is, is, you know, we're in what, April budget time is going to be hitting soon and the clock is ticking. So will we see any significant criminal justice reform this session with the end of the session coming close? Well, and Greenleaf has something like 20 bills that he's trying to push through his committee before he retires. Will he get all 20? Probably not, but I think he's really making this a a priority in his last couple months here. A campaign season where Republicans are going to be more risk averse than usual, it becomes that it becomes that much more difficult. I think. Yeah. And also, Greenleaf wants his son to take over his seat, so yes. maybe if that works out, somebody with a very similar uh, background will be in there. Not at the head of a committee, but uh, maybe. Not, maybe. Not, not all sons agree with their fathers or daughters with their moms. Anyway, anything else you guys want to add uh, coming out of this week? Anything you're looking at in the next couple of weeks? We have coming up next week in the caucus a look at um, the policy distinctions between the um, Republican candidates. We're um, going to be doing a debate down in Lancaster on April 25th with WHTM and LNP. So we're looking forward to that, trying to flesh out some more of the policy distinctions of each of the candidates. So the, uh, the uh, primaries getting closer. <laughs> to, to, to that end, Penn Live is wrapping up its endorsement reviews for the three Republican candidates. Uh, we're bringing in both of the Republican Senate candidates as well. Uh, kind of kicking the tires and checking the teeth on those guys and hope to have our endorsements uh, in early or middle May, certainly well in advance of the primary. All right. Well, on that note, guys, thank you. Go enjoy the beautiful weather. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. See ya.